Amen. Thank you. All right. So a couple of quick announcements, and then we get into the question and answer session up here today. I'm so excited. I'm sorry, folks. It's just exciting. I know what's coming down the pike for this question and answer session, and I know what we're doing this year. So what is, what is PTI for those out there who may not know on virtual land and a few folks that are maybe new here today? PTI, the Providence Theological Institute, is designed to help folks understand Jesus through the lens of the New Testament, okay, and how we live. So many churches preach law, the old customate, the, the old uh, covenant law, to the lost, and they don't care. And to the saved, it's not motivating. But you start talking about Jesus to the lost, it's salvation. To the saved, it's energy, it's the fuel, it's what drives you, it's the Holy Spirit feeding on the information within you, welling up and moving you forward, right? And so NCT recognized that several years ago. Some folks recognized that. In fact, we think the 70s, it's called the John Bunyan Conference for a reason. Why is the John Bunyan Conference? That could be a question and answer session. Why is this the John Bunyan Conference? Because the stuff that we're holding to today, we're not the first people here, folks. It's been going on, well, let's say maybe since Acts, right? It's been going on forever. We just kind of rediscovered it again, like the, the enlightenment that happened, right? In the 1700s, 1600s, 1700s kind of where we are. And that's why I'm excited about this, because I truly believe that with NCT, this isn't a moral awakening. It's a spiritual awakening. It's a spiritual understanding of what our relationship is to God through Jesus. And that's an amazing fact. So I'm going to move on from there, just that's back on who we are. So what do we do? Folks that are excited as we are about Jesus and preach him, PTI is a ministry to help ministries. So we got a few things coming up this year. One, the 2024 John Bunyan Conference. April, this same place, this same channel, April of 2024, the John Bunyan Conference. Put in calendars now, Lord willing, that's where we're going to be. Okay? Two, we are working with, with a, um, right now with Cross Theater. You know, I don't know if you know Gary Scott or not, Cross Theater. That radio series that we sponsored has wrapped up. And we're now converting that to a podcast. So in this upcoming year, we'll have a cross-theater podcast that will have the original messages, and then as Gary comes back in the swing of things, some new messages through that podcast, working on that, working on that. So three, do we have the, um, do you have the children's work we're working on right now? So Heather Kendall, where is she at? Is she in here? There we go. So she is a, uh, a well-renowned author. She has written a children's book because she realized that a lot of our children's books, the, the, the Christian children's books, are written with a dispensational theology or a covenant theology. And as the liberals will tell you, and McDonald's and Happy Meals will tell you, if you want to capture the future, capture the kids. So she has worked on a new covenant theology-based children's book, and we're going to work with her this year to help her get that published and into the hands of teachers and, and schools that we can do it, right? Or, or parents, more importantly, parents and kids and and for those of you who are lost at this conference, don't know what we're talking about, is a book not for you and me to read and kind of get the basic one-on-one of NCT. So working on that this year as well. We have a, um, is, that, is that clip, was that possible? Did you find that clip at all or no? All right, couldn't find the clip. For those of you who heard that last night, we had a quartet. I thought it was beautiful. So we're going to extract the video and audio from that quartet last night and we're going to go worldwide with this, with this NCT quartet. Come on. 
So we'll get that queued up. It'll be on our website. We're going, what about that? I think it's going to be exciting kind of stuff. And then the fifth thing we're doing this year, and, and Gary George, I meant to talk to you about this ahead of time, but every year Gary George takes a group of folks to Jamaica for a missions trip down there. And every year PTI has kind of helped a couple of folks on a need-based that want to go to Jamaica and can't really get there on their own. So it's in November, I think, Gary, is that right? Okay, first week in November. So if you're, if you're hankering for a missions trip with, I just think, a very dynamic individual in Jamaica, but you can't afford to go, then you know, contact Gary or PTI, and we'll try and work with you to make that happen. So those are five things. I'm gonna, and I've always taught, don't do too many stuff or you're going to fall apart. We'll do those five things this year. Other things may come into here, but we're going to stay focused on that. Okay? Along with falling apart, there was... This, this, the, a lot of the sessions you saw were phenomenal sessions. We had kind of a one-way conversation with Zach this morning, and we appreciate that. Zach kind of laying out sort of two sides of the argument on some things that are really an in-house debate. Um, you know, I, I will tell you that, that, as Roy and I were talking about earlier, the things that Zach went through this morning, you're not hearing. You go to any congregation in America, and folks are loving each other, and they're having a great time. They're not quite sure what they believe. They're not quite sure what you believe. They just think they love Jesus, and that's okay, amen, right? They love Jesus, and they're okay with that, and they're happy with that. And they may not know exactly what's going on behind that, because they don't ever look deeper, potentially, for that, right? This is a theological conference. One of the jobs we do is we look deeper. We figure out, why are we so happy? What does this mean to be saved? Who is God? Who is Jesus? How do we relate? Why do we relate? What does that mean, right? If I ask 10 people out of 10 in Walmart, was there a pre-creation covenant? I've lost my pre-creation. I mean, <laughs> right? And so, you yeah, ask folks in this room, we're going to be where we are. I, I would almost, though, challenge the, that for the five things Zach went over, that the person from each camp list those five things in memory and tell me very clearly which way you believe in those five things. It's going to be gray. It's already going to be gray. And now we're, we're, got a, we're changing not only sort of fellowships, but entire names of organizations based on things which I'm not quite sure people really kind of get into and what it matters or not, and maybe it does. But I say that to say this. The, the, the board of PTI, our goal, is going to be to make sure that no one's overwhelmed, that nothing's not getting done, that we get stuff done and get people in this room next year to have both sides of that conversation. So if you're out there today, and Zach this morning went through your position on theology, you are welcome here next year, April 2024, to come up and go through that position in a very brotherly or sisterly, as it may be, and let's talk about that here live and have the conversation. Is that fair? You okay with that? All right, the folks who are okay with that, with that, I am moving on. We have a question and answer panel. Who's coming up today? Who's my, who's my first contestant? Zach, he's the first contestant on question and answer, stump the pros. I got another contestant here. Who else do we have? Greg, you have been invited to come up here. I'm the second contestant, and we got Renee. Oh, he's just coming up. He's like, you know what? No, I'm going to come up. It's okay. All right, you're up here. Earlier, Gary and I had a split of a theological debate. He wanted everybody to sit together to ask questions. I said, no, spread across the room and make the mic run to place to place to place. Just because you're not saying this to Gary, and I understand you didn't want to do that, you can still ask a question, all right? I want you guys to know that. With that, and one other thing, if you're out there in the land, questions at ppage.com. 
If you want to ask a question live to our panelists, you email the quick questions at ppage.com. I've got my email address right here with me. Feel free to ask your questions. I'll ask them live. Folks, this is unfiltered. This is uncensored. And I will say from, from, Zach's, from Zach's presentation this morning, right on through to where we're finished, the statements made are not necessarily the views of this church or its membership or of PTI and its membership or the board. So I just make that very clear. I'm an attorney, my disclaimer, let's get started. All right, with that backdrop, we ready to go? Yep. We're ready to go, we're ready to go. First question, what do we have? Microphone, microphone. Who's got, who can work the mic for us here and run around and, and ask people these questions here? Is that you, Gary? Can you, can you get that turned on? Check, check that. Okay, here we go. Who has the first question? Gary, you have a question, I think, don't you? Well, okay, this would be a good introductory question, I think. Zach, you were talking about the um, NCT in the progressives. We know who NCT people are generally. Can you identify, other than Steve Wellam and his co-author, uh, who, who are the progressives? What is that group? Who are they? Are they a nationwide body of people, uh, other authors that have published similar books, et cetera? Um, I think Greg would be able to speak more to this, but it, at least in terms of my knowledge, it, it would be Stephen Wellam, it would be Dr. Peter Gentry, Brent Parker. Hold that, hold that up a little closer. Okay, sorry, can you hear me now? So in my estimation and what I have read and my own interactions, it would be Dr. Stephen Wellam, Dr. Peter Gentry, Kirk Wellam from Toronto Baptist, Brent Parker, Richard Lucas, so those individuals. So coming out of Southern Seminary and Toronto Baptist, but Greg would also be able to add some. Those are all the names I would have said as well. And, and by the way, just for the record, Renee calls them the Wallamites, a new tribe of Israel, but that's a different conversation for next year when they arrive. So, all right. Well, I, yeah, and I think, am I on? The, the lost tribes, the, the ten tribes of, of Israel and the two tribes of Israel should get back together again. Fair enough. Fair enough. I like that. So one of the things we always do for questions, we have gifts. So Gary, you asked the first question. And it's dangerous to bring a Frisbee into sanctuary because I just want to throw it. But I'm not going to do that because I'll be banned from the premises here for next year's conference. So there you go. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay. Who's next? I'm a little uncertain of how the word covenant is used. Well, as I see it, there was no creation covenant unless the three persons of the Trinity covenanted among one another to create the world. There has to be an agreement between two or more parties for there to be a genuine covenant. So un unless that was the case, then I don't think it's uh, accurate to call 
to talk about a pre-creation covenant. I think the same thing about a pre-fall covenant. Those involved in it must be free to reject it. That, as I see it, it's not a covenant. It's a threat. Don't you dare eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or else. In other words, Adam and Eve had no say in that. So if they had no say, then it's not really a covenant in the, as I understand the proper sense of the word. Now in the case of um, the covenant with Noah, a covenant as I understand it is the same as a, a deal. If you do that, I shall do this. If you don't do that, it uh, releases me from ob any obligation to do this. In other words, a covenant by its very nature is conditional. An unconditional covenant isn't really a covenant at all. It's a promise. He promised to Noah that he would, uh, he would never destroy the world again by a flood, no matter how badly humanity behaved. The same thing with Abraham. Abraham did not have to do anything for him to be the father of a great nation. So once again, I would see that as a promise rather than a covenant. Uh, suppose your child has a messy room and you say to that child, if you tidy your room, I promise you I shall take you to Baskin Robbins and treat you to a Sunday. You've used the wrong word, I think, because a promise is unconditional. You're making a deal with your child, a covenant. If you tidy a room, you'll get the Sunday. If you don't tidy it, you won't. I think the same thing of the uh, Davidic covenant. I think it's, it's not a covenant, it's a promise. He promised to David that the Messiah would come from his lineage, no matter what David and his descendants did. Now, the old covenant is, it's a deal. If you Israelites keep the law, you'll live in the promised land in, in prosperity. And you'll drive out the, the tribes that are already there. So that's a genuine covenant. If you Israelites do that, I shall do this for you. If you break the deal, then you'll suffer for it. <laughs> and the same... Excuse the microphone over it's here It's about yeah. the meanings of the word covenant. <laughs> yeah. And the same so, thing with the, the new covenant. So let's, let's stop there. It's a great question. Which response to this? We're down to terminology. The use, of the, the, the use of the word covenant to describe these promises or these relationships between God and man or mankind. What do you think about that, Greg? Uh, this is, yeah, this is exactly the, uh, the fifth area, I think, that we just heard uh, from Zach, which is uh, terminology. Uh, you raise uh, some some good points, and I think that uh, one thing that I would want to respond to and point out is that God uses the word covenant uh, in relation to Noah, in relation to Abraham, in relation to the new covenant. So he's using that word in, in a way that's not always uh, a, a con in a conditional way. So I think we have to uh, be uh, a little more broad than just saying 
uh, covenant must be must be conditional, must be a contract in the way that we think of contracts mm -hmm. between two people. Thoughts on that? My concern would be that we uh, have a focus in this conference in light of the next one that we would be able to say there are five covenants that are named as such, then we go on to define them, but there are five. And some of us, and now we would include Wellam and company, some of us believe that there also was one in the garden. And we have liberty in the via media, the middle theology between covenant and dispensational, to have that liberty, to have five or six. I happen to believe there are five. I love my brother. I think that the best thing next year would be to have Greg Van Court and Blake White sitting together. Blake believes there is none. Greg believes there is one in the garden. And that shows unity that we can have that liberty as NCTers, and we need to ask Willem if he would allow that term to come up in his books and so on. I'm rambling on, sorry. No, that's, I'm saying that's a great question. That earns you a, uh, a Chick-fil-A gift card. So that's for you. <laughs> All right, who else got a question? This is, you got a question? Before you even start, P.F. Chang's gift card for you. There you go. If it's not a good question, I'm picking that back again, give you a Frisbee, but that's okay. <laughs> May I add a comment before we move on to the next question? Sure. So I would also say, uh, piggybacking off of what Greg stated, we do have to make sure that our understanding of what God calls a covenant in Scripture is flexible enough to include the, the way they are described to us in the Scriptures. For example, a marriage covenant, I doubt any of us would view our covenant relationship with our wives or our husbands as a deal or as a threat. And so that's more of a promise promise of laying down one's life and serving and then that itself is a picture of each of these covenants culminating in the new covenant so our, our, our terminology does need to be flexible enough to include these conditional unconditional these promises and these blessings and curses as well so good point um, <clears throat> some accusations I, I hear at times uh, from others outside of NCT or progressive covenantalism um, is that of replacement theology. Now, I've heard some already deal with that. I know that some people, have, including John Reesinger and Blake White, deal with that. Um, and I just wonder what you're, what, how you would respond. And now this is one of the passages that I bring up is uh, after Jesus gives the parable of the vineyard in Matthew 21. And then he's speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he says, have you never read in scripture the stone which the builders rejected? This has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then he says, for this reason, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people who produce its fruits. How would you, how do you deal with the accusation of replacement theology and also in light of this passage? Who wants to start us off? Okay, Greg, go ahead. I think that's uh, a great question and a great passage to go to. I think 
the highlighting of Jesus as the cornerstone is something uh, that is both um, uh, tying back to the old, but also doing something new. And so uh, everything sort of narrows down to Jesus when he comes. He is the faithful Israelite. And the promises that God makes to Israel, to his people Israel, were never to unfaithful Israel. It was always to faithful Israel. And, and, and ultimately, none of the Israelites were faithful. But Jesus was the only faithful Israelite. And so in my reading of scripture, all of the promises that God makes to Israel come to Jesus. They're fulfilled in him. Uh, and then all who are incorporated in him by faith, both Jew and Gentile, are recipients uh, of those promises as well and the fulfillment of them. So that we can say it's not a replacement theology where uh, the church is this radically disconnectedly new thing that replaces Israel of old. Uh, it's an inclusion theology where Gentiles are now included into Israel, Jesus being, you know, Israel. And, and, and Israel began as one person, right? Jacob's name gets changed to Israel, and then, and then it reduces back down to one person, Jesus, and then all who are in him are in Israel. Renee, is that? A amen. <clears throat> I would just add Galatians 5.16 and Romans 11.26. In my understanding, would be that the Israel of God are these folk in what is modern Turkey now and what was in Rome then. This is the Israel of God. We are the Israel of God. So uh, replacement, I don't think, is a bad word. I wouldn't use it. It does set people off. But uh, we are the Israel of God. Zach? Yeah, and piggybacking off of my brothers, I, there are some in NCT who do use the terminology. And so in a sense that, of course, the new covenant has replaced the old covenant. The priesthood of Melchizedek in Christ has replaced the Aaronic priesthood of Aaron in the Levitical priesthood. However, I, I similarly would say it's a fulfillment versus a replacement because of the underlying assumption with replacement theology that God has, in some sense, if you hold that, that God has broken his promises to Israel, and God forbid. That, that is not true. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So they're fulfilled in him. He is the fulfillment of every, uh, every one of the patriarchs who came before him, including Israel, and he is the true Israel. And so it's by virtue of our union with him that we can be called the Israel of God. Good answer. Great question. Thank you. Who's next? Hold, hold that microphone right up to your mouth. So, hey, one, once before, before, you, before you ask, no trip to Tennessee is complete without a digging for gold. Oh. So this is a 24-carat gold-colored cardboard box <laughs> with potentially 24-carat gold inside. We're not sure what's inside the box. But you can get in there, dig in there, and find treasure, young man. Uh, and it says gold. It does. It says gold on it. So. You sure you want to be a lawyer? Stand by comedy. I will preface my question with, uh, with almost a suggestion. Uh, last night, the quartet of, how long was that name? 
What, what's the name of that how, bill? How long was that name of the quartet? It's all Martin. It's, I think it's, was it was it, it, it. What's the name of it, Renee? Do you know? Uh, the NCT nine, uh, 1644 uh, uh, vocal band. PTI. <laughs> P, PTI. Don't forget PTI. Well. My suggestion is just change it to iChart Quartet and let it go at that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and now my question is for Zach. Uh, as you spoke about the positive obedience of Christ, could that lead to a resurgence of the new perspective on Paul discussion that was held 20 to 30 years ago? Could that have any effect there? Or I would personally say in my interactions with individuals and brothers who hold the passive obedience view that I have not seen any indication that it would go in that direction. Um, it, it's possible that, that an individual could hold both simultaneously, but I have not seen any indication of that in NCT circles. And I don't think that would be a necessary consequence per se because the new perspective, of course, is redefining a vertical justification, a restoration of our relationship with God and the forgiveness and the declaration, the forensic declaration, uh, as more of a horizontal relationship. So they, they do deal with justification, but from a different aspect. So I don't think one would necessarily lead to the other, at least in my estimation. So, Greg, Renee, what do you think? Well... I differ with my two erstwhile brothers on, on this issue, but... Uh, That's it, you're out of here. <laughs> I thought I was going to get a gold brick. Uh, okay, no, it's just that uh, the, the real question is, what does the New Testament teach on that issue? And so we believe that we are justified by God through faith, and he therefore makes us just through Christ. But does Romans 5 and other passages teach the active obedience of Christ, I don't believe that. Now, if it will bring back the questions of N.T. Wright and, and others, I'm not quite sure, but I believe that using the language of obedience um, makes me slightly uneasy and saddles up to covenant theology to some extent, but that's just, I, I stand to be corrected. <laughs> or, or feel free to stand alone too, it's okay, right? That's you're, you're, you're good. What, any, any thoughts there at all from your side? Or? Uh, I agree with uh, Renee there that that is the question, and I don't think I could uh, articulate an answer better than what Zach gave to your question. Okay, fair enough. Good question. The prizes get better as the questions are. <laughs> <laughs> I sure hope so. <laughs> all right, well... Uh, just up front, like I have to be honest, like as a Christian, since I've been a Christian, probably one of the concepts that I've struggled with understanding the most is the law. Um, just because of all the different definitions and all the different teaching that goes on. And so, you know, really this is kind of just a question like for clarity, like for my own sake. And so I wrote it down just so I don't stumble. But uh, in Doug Moo's commentary on Romans, uh, from my understanding, he would agree that the Old Covenant was given specifically to the nation of Israel, and yet Israel, under the law of Moses, creates a type of paradigm that illustrates all humanity underneath God's universal law. I think uh, Pastor Sasser called it the eternal law of righteousness last night. 
Um, what merit does that view have? Is that, is that true? Um, and then a couple of questions to kind of flesh that out just for examples. But like, does Israel failing to keep the law of Moses illustrate the Gentile unbeliever's failure to live up to God's universal law? Another way to put that would be uh, the law of Moses was a pedagogue to lead to Christ. Is God's universal law a pedagogue to lead other people to, to point us to our need for Christ? Or when the Galatians were being tempted to put themselves back under the old covenant, does that serve as a warning for believers today to keep themselves from slipping back into a, a works righteousness mindset? Uh, I would say that those general ideas would be taught in churches where I've spent time in, uh, albeit the hermeneutical way that they get there is different. Um, instead, opting for that tripartite split between the law and, and the, the moral law continues on that we're to keep following. An obvious tension point there would be the Sabbath, which um, the teaching that I've heard transforms that into a principle of uh, y'all need to rest. Like God wants you guys to, to rest and not burn yourselves out. Um, not really anything to do with a specific day or anything. And while I think that's a good principle, uh, I think that's an unsatisfactory explanation of kind of what's going on there. And so, um, yeah, I hope that makes sense. Um, yeah, so that kind of explains let's, the let's, background. Let's, let's stop right there for a second, right? So I want, I want to camp on that for a minute. Okay, so Renee, you want to start here? What, oh, go ahead. Well, first of all, um, let's get our translations clear. Um, nowhere does Paul say to the Galatians that the law leads to Christ. So the law is a, what was the word that Bill Sasser used last night? Um, master. Well, he used the word pedagogue, and that's the Greek word, pedagogos, but it does mean a master. It's the guy who uh, beats the student if he doesn't go to school or if he doesn't shape up. So he's not teaching. Um, and, and the next time, uh, time frame is until Christ. That's it. That's what it is in that verse. So we have a wrong idea if we think that the law leads us to Christ. The law condemns us to death. And the corollary, Christ doesn't lead us back to the law, then back to Moses for sanctification, right? That's also not something that would NCT would hold. Is that fair? Uh, yes, and uh, Rene is absolutely uh, correct on what uh, pedag pedagogos means. I think Richard Longnecker wrote a very helpful article uh, explaining this uh, back in maybe the 90s uh, that I'd recommend to you, but uh, definitely it is not uh, a tutor, I think is the wrong word, tutor that teaches you, that leads you to Christ. It's the, the, the babysitter that keeps uh, Israel until the time uh, of Christ. On the Sabbath, I think that there is a principle there of rest. Uh, but that's not the main way that we view the Sabbath under the New Covenant today. The way that we see it in its fulfillment in Jesus Christ is that we rest all, always. We're always keeping the Sabbath as believers by resting in his finished work. Zach, thought on that? Or? Um, well, I, I, I can't add anything to what uh, Greg said, but I'll address the what you asked about the merits of the eternal standard of righteousness. So, Dr. Long used to teach, um, and you can get his book, uh, Biblical 
uh, law and ethics. And so in that, he proposes that there's absolute law and covenantal law. And so how he defined the absolute law of God was love of God and love of neighbor. And so whereas covenant theology teaches that the Ten Commandments were written on the heart of Adam in creation, NCT, or at least Dr. Long would view that the two commandments were instinctively written upon the heart of Adam at creation. So Adam instinctively knew that he was to love God and then to love Eve when she came along. Um, and then how that absolute law gets worked out is in, an, in a covenantal context. And so the Ten Commandments, as Brother Bill said, that the Ten Commandments and the whole law of Moses hang upon those two commandments, that's the covenantal outworking of those two commandments. And then the new covenant is the fullest expression of those two commandments. So the law of love, the example of Christ, and the teachings of the New Testament and all of Scripture. So the, the biblical law and ethics plug, uh, you just earned that a free copy. And because you're younger with a kid on the way, you also get a Chick-fil-A gift card. So two for one special. Yes, we have specials, folks. And it may not be fair to others, but guess what? Whoops. Life's not always fair. All right, what's next? Let me just say this. Uh, I didn't take the time. I won't say I didn't have the time last night, but I didn't take the time to say that the typical King, King James uh, translation of the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ is a weak translation. I think all these tough. What it says is the law was a schoolmaster I think Greg just said it, not to teach us about Christ or to bring us to Christ, because in the book of Acts, two things are omitted. One, there's no preaching of the law in the book of Acts, and there's really no direct mention of the love of God. So this idea of smile, God loves you, was omitted, as well as let's preach the law to drive men to Christ. You can't drive sheep. And so that's a weak translation. It just says the law was a schoolmaster. And then when Christ came, you're no longer under a schoolmaster. And I think that's important. Then hearkening back to our brother's question, and you guys can comment on this, about those covenants. My understanding is that some covenants were what we would call bilineal and some were unilateral. In other words, a, a, a bilateral bicycle, two wheels, so that's the covenant that says, I'll do this and you'll do that. And if you do that, it were conditional. If you do it, then I'll do this. But the other type covenant was, I will do this and you will do that. There were no conditions to be made. Okay. So Tanner, do you have a follow-up question? I, I cut you off midstream of your thought. I was just gonna say, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> he okay. said he's glad to be here. All right, did you hear that out there? He is glad to be here. I'm telling you, the fun we have is immense. The fellowship is great. Be here next year. And don't forget, questions at ppage.com. Email them in, and I'll ask them. What's next? This question is for Renee. And it's, uh, would it be correct to say that Jesus, before the crucifixion, as you referred to the man who would be king, and only after the resurrection do we see him as the king Jesus. I believe that. 
I think that uh, he is designated as the king from, for, from forever. Uh, I think in the period of Malachi, uh, it's not historically evident that he was uh, honored as such. Whether you take that I am the great king is Yahweh, or it is the Godhead, or even just narrowed down to Christ, in either of those capacities, he was just not honored at, as king at that time. But he was recognized as king in Psalm 2 on Zion's holy hill when uh, God resurrected him. Psalm 2 has to be interpreted not in Bethlehem, but on, on uh, the, the resurrection morning. And, and so it, then he is recognized as king for all nations. Good question, good answer. What's, what's next out here? Who has a question for us? Question? Let's go. Hold on, Heather. In Canada, there are a lot of people who are Reformed Baptists, and they hold to the 1689 Confession of Faith. And I've heard a sermon um, from someone that... Uh, that Jesus is not greater than Moses and, and the moral law of the Ten Commandments, that's, a, that's it. Um, I'm just wondering, is covenant, the progressive covenantalism, has it come from some of those people that are maybe changing their mind a little bit and realizing that, that Jesus is over Moses and he's, he's the greater king, the greater lawgiver? In my estimation, I don't think that they're moving in that direction because in their original version of kingdom through covenant they originally viewed their position as a subspecies of new covenant theology so there's great resonance between them and john reesinger with christ being the new lawgiver so christ is greater than moses and i i firmly believe that wellam and gentry would hold that and it's not just because they're arguing that <clears throat> pardon me that the law of Christ is all of the scriptures interpreted in light of Jesus Christ. I don't think that's a movement to say, well, we're moving back towards covenant theology and bringing ourselves back under the Mosaic law. So I, I don't think that they would affirm that at all, and they would affirm Christ as infinitely greater than Moses. So, Greg? I agree with that, and I would just add that I think I would be right to say that the progressive covenantalists are uh, putting certain emphases in order, in an apologetic way, to reach out to uh, our covenant theology brothers to try to attract them and bring them in closer to a new covenant theology. Just uh, building on that is the website for uh, our friend Wellam has an emphasis on the 1689 and if we can come to an entente of the Via Media, the brothers will be welcome, but we have to really make sure where we stand on 1689 for sure, yeah, with great so, nuances. And, and with that, you receive a, you are so loved, flower arrangement. Uh, and I couldn't think of anyone more appropriate to give this to than, than you, so you are welcome. And you if were you, so loved. If you want to right. ask a question and don't want a gift, you can still ask a question. <laughs> I have a question. Um, Brother Bill Sasser mentioned last night that in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21, uh, Paul was sa said that uh, he was not under the law, uh, but under the law to Christ. 
In Galatians 6, 2, it says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, 1 John 2, 6 says, He that saith he abides in him ought himself also so to walk as he walked. Is there a parallel uh, between following Christ, walking after Christ, and that is the way in which we really fulfill the law of Christ? Could you guys be maybe specific in what we should understand by being under the law to Christ? I would say, so 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And so being created in the image of God, what is man supposed to instinctively do? Just like God is love and God loves, we are to love God and we are to love one another. And of course, the fall caused a great train wreck in that area. And then with the coming of Christ, who is the true image of God, he is the image of God, as it states in Colossians, he's restoring that, that purpose, that goal. And so, yes, I would say our calling is to follow him in his example. And that's many people in New Covenant theology would hold that as a component of the law of Christ, the law of love. We love, we are called to love as he loved us, the way he loved others, the way he loved his father. And, and I think that that's that restoration of the image of God in Christ and the fulfillment of it. And that's what we're being recreated in the image of him, who is the firstborn son of God. So, Yeah, we go back to ground zero for the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. And that fourth is the total obliteration of my sin. But uh, the first is that he will write that, that law on my heart. So as I draw nigh to God... He draws nigh to me. As that Holy Spirit brings me to repentance and I walk in his way, I want to do his will because I'm contemplating Christ. And as I contemplate him, he says to me, if you love me, keep my commandments. So I forgive the brother that offended me or whatever. And walking in that sense starts with submitting to, to Christ at every moment. Greg, you're shaking your head yes. Do you disagree? No, I agree. I agree. I think... Um you know, that Corinthians passage is so helpful because what Paul says about himself is true about us as believers today. We're not under the law, he says. He's talking about the Mosaic law, and that's us. Uh, but, but it's not that we're apart from or without the law of, of God, that um, uh, eternal law of righteousness that, that Bill Sasser talked about. We are. And in what way are we? Paul says we're under the law of Christ. And so that applies to us uh, today. And Yes, I think, you know, this is where we have great um, common ground with our uh, brothers, uh, not just between New Covenant theology and progressive uh, covenantalism, but uh, also with our brothers in other traditions as well. I think we can all agree that, uh, that, that all of the law is summed up in love of God and love of neighbor, and that as we follow Christ, we are fulfilling that law. this without dropping everything. Um, in, rela in relation to covenant, um, in particular, uh, I'm going to read a passage out of Genesis chapter 3, and it's verse 17, where the Lord is rebuking Adam, and he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. And I'm wondering, I haven't followed through on that, but the idea of commanded could that be covenant? 
And so when we read in Hosea, um, uh, uh, Hosea 6, he says uh, the people of Israel have been disobedient because they haven't listened to what would have been the Mosaic covenant. But then he relates it over, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, which my mind would indicate Genesis 3.17, which I haven't followed through in chasing that out um, any farther than that. But the idea was that they did not listen, or he did not listen to what the Lord had said. So um, any thoughts that maybe what you guys have uh, studied out or looked into? I'd like to lead with that um, and say that, you know, I've gone back and forth on whether or not there's a covenant uh, at creation. Um, Right now, I think that uh, there is, uh, and so I'm in disagreement with my brother, Rene. And now you're out of here. Now I'm out of here. (laughs) I... um, but, uh, but I'll say it this way, I'm 51% convinced, and, uh, and, and I could be convinced otherwise. Have, have uh, you traced through, the specific question, have you traced yes, through yes. that verse and yeah. command there could be translated covenant or mean yeah. covenant there or not? Yeah, so I think that, uh, I think the Hosea passage is helpful in helping us uh, try to uh, see that. As, as Zach mentioned, though, in his uh, talk, that the Hebrew word Adam uh, can be translated Adam, as it is in, in, in your Bible. Uh, or it could be translated just just man or mankind, and so those who don't see a covenant in creation with Adam would uh, be more inclined, I think, to translate uh, Hosea as as mankind. Rene, how do you translate it? Adam uh, can also mean a town nearby, and there's other uh, possibilities that John Angus uh, Harley sets out in his critique of Wellam's book on the Adamic um, covenant. So commandment means commandment. Some people call it the mandate of Eden. Uh, so, but it's not a covenant. So you have to you know, push and pull um, to make a commandment into a covenant. Does it really make a difference, though, whether or not you see it as a covenant or otherwise? What role does that have in the final outcome of your new covenant theology position? Does it alter anything, or is it just a matter of trying to utilize the word covenant to sort of cover the whole of the Bible, that kingdom through covenants, plural, beginning at the beginning of Genesis, because it gives it a little more completeness by utilizing the word covenant. That's just a thought. I I think I like that question, because I think the reason that I flip-flop and I'm so wishy-washy on this particular question is that in the end, it doesn't make much of a difference. Yeah, I I would second that as well. So I've gone back and forth as well on the issue. And so I I probably agree I'm I'm 51% convinced. And so I've gone back and forth. And and it is a a strong argument that the word is not used there. Um, But, you know, in response to that, Psalm 89 is, is where the Davidic promise in 2 Samuel 7 is described as a covenant. And then one could also say there's the marriage covenant there that's not spoken of as a covenant until you get into other sections of the Old Testament. But at the end of the day, I, I don't think it affects the, the overall understanding greatly in that. So. Renee? Yeah, and I, I think if the whole outcome of this and the next um, John Bunyan conference uh, is that we can get Wellam and his crew to say, 
okay, we can live together, and there could be one, or that rather than being dogmatic, there isn't one, or there is one, but that we can have this third question, because Zach had two questions at the end of each one of those five points. I would add the first one would be, can we have a document based on what Zach has given to us, sent out to the people that are uh, concerned, Volker, Wellam, all the people that need to get it, they work on it so that next time we have a document that's possible because we're aiming to get the two groups back together again. And, and just, and again, to be clear, for, for Wellam or Wellamites, as the case may be, uh, that th this is not a reflection that they were invited and did not choose to attend or anything like that at all. It's a goal we have, and we just got to reach out to them and coordinate that, make that happen. So this is, there's no one who has said, I will not attend or will attend or what have you. It's just the board and PTI as an organization making sure that we get in here, that people we need to have in here, that they have this conversation. So I just make sure that's, that's clear for people. All right, and that was a, uh, a Panda Express gift card, by the way, for that question. So I hope you like Asian or American Asian, as the case may be. There you go. Brethren, let me ask you this question, and I don't want to muddy the water. But in Revelation chapter 18, we read that those, whatever, however you interpret that eschatologically, it says that those who came through all of this trouble and trial, they sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. So how do you, how do you interpret that? What's your take on that, if, it's, if that's not too much? Stumped. <laughs> That's in chapter 15 rather than 18, though. 15, I right. I, um, I preached through Re Revelation a while back. Uh, we got a pretty good crowd for that series. And I, I just tend to think of our own singing today. I mean, we sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. You know, if you look through our hymnals, uh, that there are references uh, to uh, God's great works in bringing his people out of slavery and of course, we understand that as Christian scripture, not as Jewish scripture, but as Christian scripture pointing us to Jesus. And, and in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll still be singing of God's great works. So I would see the typological uh, uh, argument that uh, as we looked at the transfiguration last night, it was brought out that what, were talk what was Moses and Elijah talking about and the idea that is that they were talking about the exodus that was about to happen in Jerusalem, Christ's exodus. So there is the type and there is the anti-type, and they meet together in Revelations 15. So you don't have nothing to add to that. No, no, I have nothing to add to that. I agree with both. So, so for for the for a dispensation, she says that's the the Song of Moses is a representation of the nation of Israel coming through. Right. And the lamb is the Gentile. You don't. They're, they're reading their theology into that verse. Well, are we all not guilty of that at some, some degree? Or? Well, that's where the primacy of the New Testament comes in as a doctrine of New Covenant theology is that we go first to what Christ estimated uh, Moses to be and what God estimated. And he like just got deleted back into the invisible world there. And it was just Jesus Christ that was there. And they were talking about Christ's exodus. It has moved up. It's, up. it's upgraded. So the promises to Abraham, even land promises, are subsumed and filtered through Christ. That, and, and, and that's a great 
summary statement for, for NCT or progressive problems, as the case may be, right, is that lens that redefines these questions. So wait a minute, if I look at it through this lens through Christ, now it makes sense. Is that, okay. The, li the literal song of, of, of Moses is just a song of victory. That's what they're saying. It's just a song of victory. We have victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Great, great question, Bill. And you're, you're on the board, so you're disqualifying prizes, so I apologize. That's okay. <laughs> Actually, no, I gave, I gave you a Frisbee, right? You, Bill, you are free to throw this in the sanctuary if you want to because you'll, you'll always be invited no matter how many times you throw this. So here you go. All right, who's next for questions? We got a lot of gifts up here still, so come on, let's go. Well, we have a lady here. Got a good question, I'm sure. Uh, I think this is for Brother Van Court. Um, on the use of the law, you mentioned that the law is not necessary to be preached in order to share the gospel with a person. As I recall earlier on in New Covenant teaching, many people use the First Timothy 1 passage about the law is good if it's used lawfully to maybe counter the idea that we don't use the law for sanctification. And so they would say that, well, the way that we use the law today is an evangelism to bring you know, sin to bear and to light in the life of a person. Could you comment on that First Timothy passage, perhaps, and how it's better used than that way? Sure. Thank you for the question. I think that uh, we use the law uh, lawfully when we understand you know, that, that word law is broad, and it can refer back to all of the Old Testament, and all of it is living and active and inspired by God, breathed out by him for uh, our good, for our instruction, for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, which he also writes uh, to Timothy, uh, and um, that uh, lawful use uh, of the law is what we've been talking about here, is, is reading it through the lens of, of Jesus Christ, and as Christian scripture, uh, it, uh, it, it helps us and comes to us. I don't think the law, uh, especially if we think more narrowly of the Ten Commandments or the law of Moses with all of its regulations, needs to be uh, preached in evangelism. In fact, I, I don't see uh, in the New Testament where the gospel is being preached, where anyone does that. I don't think that it's helpful. I understand that it, uh, is, it happens in modern day as Christians are trying to bring to people their need for a savior, their, their understanding that they need uh, to be forgiven of their sins. And so they take them to the, long, the law first to sort of uh, have that bear down on them to bring, bring conviction. Uh, but I, I, I argue that uh, you don't move uh, from the... Uh, plight to solution, but from the solution to the plight. You preach Christ, his work, his glory, all that he's done, and, and, and as God uses that um, incorruptible seed of his word to cause people to be born again, they see the glory of Christ, uh, they hear of how he now reigns and rules, will come again to judge the living and the dead. That then leads to uh, the, the crisis of what must I do to be saved and, and the answer is repent and, and believe it's not uh, ten commandments or go to the law Renee nothing to add perfect yeah. nothing to add so that gets you a soon to be autographed Heather Kendall one greater than Moses book 
she's three rows ahead of you. You want her autograph on this book? And you were, you're glad to, glad to get that. That's okay, right? She's all in. Perfect. All right, who's next? Can I fill in again? Uh, if NCT consents that it's not an essential whether one holds to the pre-fall covenant of, of, uh, with Adam or not, could it still also be true among NCT people that it's not essential on how one views the righteousness of God that's imputed to the believer, whether it's because of the active obedience of Christ or the passive obedience of Christ? And can there be a combination of both holding both or maybe being uncertain of whether it is absolutely one and not the other so that the conclusion basically is how can we be dogmatic on this what we can be dogmatic on is that the righteousness that we have imputed to us is a perfect holy sinless lamb-like righteousness that is acceptable to God and why can't that be sort of the common denominator that would unite us, even though we may come from different perspectives on what is specifically that righteousness, whether it's active or passive obedience of Christ. Do you follow me on this? Yeah. I think so. I think we should all be able to say that because God justifies us, therefore, he might do it through the active obedience of Christ, or he might just declare us just. Um, again, the question is, what does the New Testament teach? And in that Romans 5 passage, there is that one act of obedience. Is that his death? I think so. My dear brethren think that it can f be fleshed out more in his whole life of obedience to God the Father. I don't see that, but that's all right. I, I think we should be able to live with both and hopefully, our brother Willem and Volker would also be able to live with both. But there we go. Zach? No, I agree. And if I didn't agree, I wouldn't have listed it as a disputable difference. So uh, clearly, even in the New Covenant Confession of Faith that I listed, it's justification by faith alone. That's the clear teaching. And so we're just differing over... Although I hold to the total obedience view, we're differing over the basis of the justification. So what is actually imputed? It's still the righteousness of Christ. It's just we're defining it slightly different. And I don't think, I, I don't think it's going to necessarily undermine justification per se. Um, I know Dr. Long would disagree with me on that, and that's, and that's fine, um, as I quoted in the, the talk this morning. So, but it makes that, because we're getting close to the doctrine of justification, it makes people bristle. And it does engender controversy just because of that proximity. Um, so, but I'm more than willing to have a discussion about that and differ, differ on a disputable uh, set of matters with that. Realistically, if this was not a New Covenant Theology Conference, but a Covenant Theology Conference and you three guys were representing covenant theology and questions were being asked you on what you believe regarding this or that, I'm sure there, was going to, there would be some distinctions between you three, but not any of you would say that you're not covenant theologians. So 
there needs to be an allowance for that wiggle room, if I can call it that, so that we don't make uh, majors out of minors and mountains out of mohills. And it's not that I'm trying to downplay in any way, you know, uh, the queen of sciences, theology, and, and correct doctrine, but I think sometimes we need to be more realistic than idealistic. And, and, and again, just in total fairness, that this is not a one-way street. So it's a two-way street. And to the extent that you know, folks up here or out there have otherwise said, well, wait a minute, that's a wall for us. You know, that's, that's, that's not cast stones necessarily. And I'm not saying that we've done that or haven't done that. It's just it's hard to have a one-sided conversation. <laughs> and, and so just putting that in context. But it's a great point. When I wrote uh, the book that uh, is called Introduction à la Théologie de la Nouvelle Alliance, Introduction to New Covenant Theology, I submitted it to the publisher in Quebec. And when he saw my references to, uh, you know, the Christ died for our sins only as the imputation argument, uh, he bristled. So I had to sort of tamp down some of my, these are brethren of the dispensational kind in Quebec. They would be very MacArthur. They translated all his books. Uh, and, yet, um, and yet they hold to that tenet, which comes, let's face it, it comes from covenant theology. Um, and and uh, MacArthur has espoused it. And so um, I think we need to be, as you say, more in that wiggle room, secondary, you know, in all things essential, let's really battle for it. But in secondary things, let's have humility and, and then in, in all things charity. But, and Renee, to that, to that point, we can help you get that published. So if there's materials out there that, that some camp or another is not letting you publish because it doesn't quite square on the wiggle room items, please reach out to PTI and we will help with that all we can. So, Regarding that topic about active and, and passive obedience, historically speaking, was there debates about this in the past, uh, in the early Reformation days? As far as I know, it came up with the Plymouth Brethren between John Nelson Darby and, and, and Newton, B.W. Newton, in the 1840s. I, I was uh, aware of that because that I was with Plymouth Brethren, and that was a, a topic of division in the 1840s between Darby and Newton, uh, and that rooted was a root problem for causing the division because one took one position. Newton, of course, took the, uh, the active obedience position, and Darby took the passive obedience position. But the Brethren had a history of dividing over almost anything, so I wouldn't use that as the model for a reason to divide. But are you aware of anything prior to that? There uh, was. Uh, I, I can't remember his name, but there was a Presbyterian or Reformed theologian very early on that uh, renounced uh, the total obedience view. Uh, I don't remember his name, but it's out there. On the internet, there's a huge uh, doctoral thesis by one student in one of, our, in one of the seminaries that has looked at that. and. Uh, so it just needs to be found that there is very early a, a and, reformed and bet, fellow that put it into question. And I bet there would be a minority among New Covenant people 
who would want to make an issue out of this, a minority, yeah. and say it's, it's got to be one or the other, and if you don't see it my way, then you're in error, and it's serious enough that we, we really need to debate it, and you need to be on my side. Yeah, I, I would say with what David Leon just said, it's a two-way street, so it's, it's coming from both sides. So the cooperation and the understanding and the humility and the desire to work with one another in different Christian love, if we can't attain that kind of common ground in that area, needs to come from both sides. So both from the passive obedience view as well as the total obedience view. So. Question up front. Under the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments and the Moral Law, they, 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 they did not obey. They were lawbreakers. Is it fair to say, under the New Covenant, that the unsaved and even us as saved, we need to confess and repent our sins still, that we also are lawbreakers, but under the law of Christ? Is that, is that an accurate term to use still? Lawbreakers? I use it personally in preaching. You know, we, Zachary, we lawbreakers? We don't love God as much as we should. And I, we, we, we would agree we, we need to be repenters, even as believers. So, so I would answer that question along the lines of both justification and sanctification. So from the aspect of justification, God considers us as if we have never sinned. Now, in the sanctification process, of course, we break the law it's good, good and it's fulfilled in christ yeah. in us and through the work of the holy spirit progressively sanctifying us but i would answer that question from that particular aspect of justification so more or less the already not yet you can even apply it in that sense as well when you get to law breaking then you get to discipline and what happens and that's matthew 18 and in that process you're talking about god siding with the assembled saints as they decide that such and such a brother has ceased to listen to the other brothers. Mm -hmm. And presumably on a point of moral or doctrinal or the love issue. And, and, and he's, he's not listening anymore, neither at the first level of a brother's gone to see him, then two, and now he's not even listening to the church. And so God declares that he's in, he's in complete agreement with what that uh, assembly has decided after due diligence has been done to the process, of course, but uh, then that, broking, that breaking of fellowship is almost seen as breaking of law. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure that the breaking of law, of Christian law, would ever come up as, as a, a specific um, wording, but uh, I think it comes to that. Mm -hmm. I think just coming from a pastoral and biblical point of view, uh, labels matter uh, as far as teaching people what their identity is mm -hmm. I would be very hesitant to be routinely you know calling the people in my church lawbreakers sure yeah it's not not routine but evangelistically particularly yeah I think uh, it, one of the things that's real interesting uh, if you look at the New Testament and what Paul calls Christians uh, how he labels them mm -hmm. what, how he talks about their identity he's always talking about them as holy and uh uh, we, it gets translated as saint, uh, but um, their identity in Christ is what he's emphasizing over and over again. And in fact, uh, hamartia sin and hamartano, the, the verb to sin, 
is never once applied to Christians in the New Testament, which is amazing if you think about it, because we continue to sin, but that, w that sin word group is never applied to Christians. It's only applied to unbelievers, except when Paul says that he's the chief of sinners. And uh, I take that not as a uh, reference back to before his conversion, but the way he views himself uh, now. So there is uh, that, uh, that one place where he's talking about himself as a sinner that helps mm -hmm. us, I think, to see ourselves as the chief of sinners as well. But, um, but did, he, did he refer to himself as a chief lawbreaker? No, not, not, he didn't use the word lawbreaker. And, and no uh, New Testament writer refers to other Christians in, in terms of lawbreaker. So that's not a term I think I would want to, to, to use. Good. Yeah. The second, uh, the Bunyan Conference. Uh, John Bunyan, particularly Pilgrim's Progress. I, I forget the reference that John Riesker would ref refer to in the, I think it was in Pilgrim's Progress, why he named it the Bunyan Conference. But also with, I'm not a scholar on Pilgrim's Progress, but uh, there was that sense uh, where the law, when he was converted, the law came off him. And I was sharing my testimony with Tanner the other day, and, and at 21 years old, I was marvelously saved. And, and I, for three years, I've been reading, I was reading the Bible, Genesis, Revelation. And I, I felt that law come off me, <laughs> like in Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, yeah, it was a marvelous conversion. But any comment, just John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, why Bunyan, that recently chose Bunyan, and the reference to uh, what I just referred to, the law coming off him. Just any reflections or comments? I mean, I would say that we view John Bunyan, in a sense, as a precursor to New Covenant theology mm -hmm. with just the way he approached the scriptures, the Old Testament, and then viewing it as fulfilled in Christ. It's not, I wouldn't say it's New Covenant theology in the sense as we understand it today, but it's definitely a precursor to that. That's what I understood. It was recently, he wrote somewhere in the Sound of Grace on you know, the Bunyan reference. We're not called the Calvin Conference or the Owen Conference or the Edwards. It's the Bunyan. There's a reason for it. So, anyways, uh, I think right? of I think of just three things when I think of Bunyan and New Covenant theology. I think of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and the, particularly the uh, part where uh, Pilgrim is uh, told, uh, you know, by uh, who is it uh, to to go see Mister uh, Legalism, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's up on that hill. And as he goes the the hill, he realizes is Mount Sinai, and it's gonna it's gonna crush him. And he I think he has a very biblical New Covenant view of uh, not going to the, to the law, uh, but uh, to Christ, and that burden coming off of him. Uh, and then he's written uh, outside of Pilgrim's Progress about the Sabbath, very, very much uh, uh, like-minded uh, with us on the Sabbath issue. Uh, and then on uh, open communion, which I think is just the kind of the heart of, uh, of uh, New Covenant theology as far as how do we view our uh, brothers and sisters uh, who disagree with us on, on uh, non-essential matters. Mm -hmm. So that is a uh, gift card to Chick-fil-A. Okay, wow, thank question. you. So well, well, one, one last easy question. You like easy questions, don't you? So the Lord should tarry in 2033, and Pastor Sasser will be his 62nd year anniversary, 2033. Any thoughts? T two things, twofold. Just, again, briefly, any comments for reflection? Where do you think we're moving towards? New Covenant theology had the, the young restless reform movement kind of waning, but with that came resurgence of reform theology. With that came a resurgence of covenant theology, decrease in dispensationalism, 
here we are, 2023. I'm a product of uh, New Covenant Theology. John Riesinger, big influence on me 30 years ago when I got saved. A young man, my roommate in the hotel, Tanner. So any comments? Two things. Where do you... Where would you like us to be if Lord should tarry in 10 years? And then realistically, where do you think we're actually heading? Great question. Any, any thoughts or reflections, futuristic? Yep. Uh, so in 10 years, I would like us to be in a place where all of the world uh, hold to new covenant theology and worship Jesus Christ. Uh, as I'm far with you as, on that. <laughs> as far as where, uh, where I see us being in 10 years, I'm very optimistic. I, I think that... Um, I think dispensationalism is on the wane. Uh, it, uh, it pretty much uh, uh, doesn't exist much outside of America. It's very popular, has been in our past, in pockets of America. I think, um, uh, I'm not, not sure what will happen with John MacArthur's uh, church and leadership, you know, once he's uh, not uh, an influence anymore. Um, I, I see that uh, just continuing to decline and to wane. And then our uh, covenant theology brothers are just in such a very narrow lane uh, that they that they rarely get out and fellowship with uh, others who are not absolutely in that same lane with them. That uh, I don't see much growth there. So I think that new covenant theology really is uh, going to grow and influence uh, many congregations through uh, conferences like these, through pastors like these teaching their congregation, raising up new men who go out and do the same and uh, multiply and replicate uh, all across the world. I agree. Renee? Well, I hope for unity with PC. I don't think the name PC uh, will in 10 years be there. And uh, I appreciate Wellam's harmonious uh, explanations uh, between the covenants, each one in its own place, leading to the new, maybe not quite the distance that it should take, a thousand pages to get to the new, that's my own feeling, but, but I really appreciate his teaching, um, so we need him, and I think he needs us, but uh, I think the, the name is a bit awkward. Zach? Yeah, I would love to see more of a spirit of cooperation amongst within New Covenant Theology itself, but also with NCT and, and Progressive Covenantalism. Um, I also think um, uh, both me and Pastor Greg were talking about this, of, of ensuring that there is a proper succession that where we can fill pastoral roles within current New Covenant theological churches with, and backfill with pastors and then ensure that it continues to grow and it's not just a blip in certain areas. And so um, that, that, that also needs to take place in order for that growth to take place. But I'm, I'm also very optimistic, as, as Greg said. Yeah, in 10 years, can we not hope for a resurgence of the Institute to re-become a seminary so that Providence would have some young students and, and growth? Certainly, that's within our, our purview and, and our plan to, to, to make that grow. I will say a quick plug for succession planning. That is a, a huge need for churches across America and, and the world that there is a succession plan in place. And, and so we've been asked as an institute to help churches with succession planning. And so if you're concerned about that, reach out to PTI and we'll at least get you started in the right direction of what that means, what that looks like, how to make that happen, and maybe some planning there. 
So. We have another question. Yep. It's not a question. Um, Jesus prayed for unity, and Paul talked about one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And my prayer is just be that true believers would, in the different parts that they disagree, would come to a unity and that we will be one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Good point. So I think we're, what, were you going to, what, what's our top stop time? Well, it was 12.50, but this is, <laughs> okay. so I don't know if the food's here, but. We, we're, the, the, this panel is glad to keep going, but lunch is here if folks are hungry, and we're going to stick to the schedule if folks want to. So other questions? No, last question. We'll do it this way. Last question. There we go. We got a last question over here. It's, it's really not a question, but it's a, a loose statement of John Owens. We are saved not in order to be saved. But uh, let me restate it. We do because we are saved, not in order to be saved. That's very loosely what John Owens says. As we live our lives, we do it to honor God, not in order to stand justified before God, but in order to honor God. Because our justification comes from him, not from us. Disagreement? Agreement? Amen. 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 We got an amen up here. Hallelujah. All right. Uh, April 2024, John Bunyan Conference, to be continued. Thank you. Want to close us in prayer, Renee? Yes. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ who is exalted in all these strains, but we are making an a super effort. We're saying we're Christocentric and make us that and and show us the glories of Jesus Christ more and more as we build on each other's edification, teachings, books. Uh, we thank you, Father, for the, the distance that ha we have come. We ask you that it might go on and progress and grow and that uh, NCT might permeate uh, the Gospel Coalition, might permeate different uh, instances where uh, we see this as a liberating theology and, and as a glorifying to you uh, theology, uh, Lord Jesus. And in your name, we've prayed the Father. Amen.